0: Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm your guest host, Julia Slattery, and on this episode, we're continuing our spring 2018 North America tour from the floor of the Collision Conference in New Orleans. Collision is North America's fastest growing tech conference and contains 16 different tracks, including SAS Monster, Talk Robot, Full Stack, and Growth Summit. The conference brought together more than 25,000 business leaders from more than 5,600 companies in 120 countries to watch talks and learn how tech is impacting their lives, companies, and industries. Over the course of this episode, we'll be talking with tech and product leaders from an interesting cross-section of companies, including Dropbox, NASA, and Haymarket Consumer Media, among others. Without further ado, here are the interviews from our time at Collision, starting with Anaid Shikan. Anaid is a product manager at Dropbox, which, if you're somehow not familiar with it, is a secure file hosting service that offers cloud storage, file synchronization, personal cloud, and client software. Anaid and I are joined by Massey Bebahani, a product manager at 3Pillar Global. All right, so we're here at Collision Conference with Anaïd from Dropbox. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Absolutely, thank you for having me. Of course.
0: Can you give us a little background on who you are and what you do?
1: Yes, so I am a product manager for the desktop platform at Dropbox. I've been working there for five years, and... um, Beyond my background in product management, I also was an engineer before in a Fortune 500 company that was on retail for auto parts. So the combination of both of those experiences has allowed me to um, help Dropbox execute on their technical strategy, particularly relating to putting our product out in desktop devices.
2: Very nice. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Anaïd. Um, I was just wondering, I haven't met a lot of product managers with a technical background, so how specifically does that help you? From the, Does it help you in terms of communication with your product team and your engineering team?
1: It helps me a lot in different dimensions. One of them is obviously this empathy that you can have around how much things can take in completing projects or also what its complexity is, uh, but also in some strategical really important things like thinking about how we interface with, uh, in our case, since we're an application that ships on top of an underlying operating system. There's a very important piece of my work that requires me to think about not only the market trends and what is motivating, operating system manufacturers to make changes, but also to understand what are the, like, the different levers that we have uh, in terms of both technology uh, to actually be successful in those platforms. So the technical background has also given me an edge uh, to be able to take those opportunities and to frame them in a way that both uh, my business partners, people that work on the design aspect of our product, as well as engineering can understand and align on something that takes us forward.
2: That's great. Right. And then in terms of product management, what are some of the trends that you're seeing lately? Um, what are some of the um, goals that, that you're in and objectives in your product team that, you're, um, that, that, that you've seen kind of uh, come up in the past few months or, or year? I
1: think one of the very interesting trends, and I, I believe this is probably across the whole like industry, is trying to iterate quicker and learn quicker. Uh, there's obviously a tension between the polish that a company that Dropbox has with, like, have your brand and people have expectations about what you actually ship to users with um, how can you continue learning in a safe way. Uh, so one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about within Dropbox and with, like, partners in, in the whole um, product management space is how can we... Uh, create not only system, but tools, and also like ways of thinking about problems that are out there, mm-hmm. and like what is the minimum thing that you need to ship to learn from it? How can you get information that points you directionally to what the next step to learning more is, and also. Figuring out how to incorporate that into the larger strategy and ensure that you're just not uh, doing experiments for the sake of experimentation. So, I think that's one of the trends that's very prevalent. And I think I've also seen a lot of resurgence of um, user insights and the pulling in, in a more collaborative way, different functions. I remember when I started working in the other company that wasn't before. Uh, one of the things that was very common is that most of the strategy was set just by the product manager and engineer was in an execution role. Design just came to like put the buttons in, and mm-hmm. then you ship it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I think the whole product process is a lot more collaborative, and bringing all those different perspectives has actually made a big difference in what we are actually shipping and how fast can we learn.
2: And how? What are some of the ways that you get these um, product learnings? Um, is it from um, kind of small releases or do you go directly into your analytics or do you go directly to your users?
1: It depends on the insight and also the the maturity of the idea, right? You can have ideas that are really early stage where all you want is to get signal from users and you can do like very even like paper mocks that show like, hey, we're thinking about this. Would this be useful for you? And there are other things that you want to test on top of already proven solutions to increase those, like the, for example, you can see like increased monetization endpoints, or you want to increase the amount of offerings that you have for users that are already in that. So, in those ones, you use more, you rely more on analytics and you have like things like statistics and actually being um, able to look at how users behave in a certain way uh, on that card and also seeing. The whole like funnel uh, behaviors. So we have ideas across all those different ranges, from like very early stage ideas to more just incremental feature development. Uh, at Dropbox and I think one of the interesting things is like how you make them coexist in a way that you don't put too many resources in like the sexy new thing and also like how do you make sure that your product continues to like move forward and show some forward progress particularly now as a public company because you need to show some progress so
2: and, and if I'm not Mistaken, did you guys undergo a visual design change uh, recently? Yes, we did. And
1: that is uh, very intentional and it was part of repositioning ourselves as not only being a tool where you can store your data and use this in backup use cases, but also really extending the layer of capabilities for Dropbox uh, to be a place where you come and collaborate and do work with your, uh, with your team and uh, get stuff done that's just like having backup and retrieval cases. So the whole redesign was part of that context. of was repositioning to both our users, uh, other people in the market, and telling people, like, hey, there's a lot more than you can do with Dropbox. I think one thing that historically we've not been really great at doing is showing people how many other new things we've been adding to the mm-hmm. application mm-hmm. and to all our service in general, actually. Uh, so this, this was a very good opportunity to in a very differentiating way because I don't know if you're familiar with our old brand or old brand was yeah. very like blue and exactly, very yeah. very safe uh, and moving more towards something that is okay this this calls your attention and makes you think okay is this the same company uh, one of the things that was actually that we had to think about very carefully is like how do we make sure that we do not uh, Get in a position where people that already trust the product uh, lose confidence because of this like this rebrand, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was something that was um, managed throughout like the whole very thoughtful process of transition to new brand. Um, I think so far it's gone pretty well. <laughs> Initially, it was. Um, Kind of taking back, I'm a very um, people that are not looking at me right now, but I, I normally dress in very neutral colors <laughs> and our new brand is very colorful. Yeah, like it, it took is. me a while to warm up to it. Um, but I've actually started to enjoy it because it's very recognizable. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's also a good way of keeping top of mind for for users in a way that like, yeah, there was a change and this is how we communicate that.
2: I loved it. Now I, I I think it that's why it stuck in my mind. I think yeah, it was a, yeah, it was so a it's, nice it's change. It's working. Yeah, it yeah. 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 yeah, as your as one of your customers. In terms of like roadmap and release plans, do you guys follow that um, type of uh, you know product development cycle or, or um, you know and is it is it uh, planned out well in advance or do you um, depending on your user feedback and the you know stakeholders you know does it change constantly? How do you how do you work in terms of product releases?
1: Product releases are more like per platform, also per area. We are organized sort of like behind. There's this vision that we have or that our leadership has for where the company should be going and what things uh, we should be empowering our users to do. And then the roadmap essentially is just what we know or have certainty for like the following quarters that we're going to deliver. One of the interesting parts of Dropbox is that it's um, we have a consumer product, but we also have a business product. And balancing those two out, like consumers care about certain things or they're not going to be injecting a lot of new asks into a roadmap, but they want to see some progress. They're like, there's a strategy of like putting things in the roadmap for consumers that keeps them engaged and keeps like the whole user acquisition thing growing, but at the same time you also have to think about what are value you're delivering to businesses to know that to show that you're committed to actually providing solutions that they actually can stick up to. So that roadmap is managed slightly separately and with uh, like, we're focusing mostly on SMBs uh, right now uh, or that's actually where we've played more. Uh, Part of the stuff that we're trying to do now is like how can we expand to uh, larger companies and what are the needs that those have and what are like, they're also really different cycles uh, for larger companies to adopt your product. So that's part of what we're learning as, as part of like, segmenting a roadmap, uh, aligning that to the strategy, and ensuring that we're keeping both our consumers happy and going up market slowly.
2: Yeah, that makes total sense because, I mean, as a just a non-business user, you know, I just think of myself and how I use Dropbox, but you have a lot of different users, and so you have to meet their demand, different personas that you have to... Um, address. Well wonderful. Absolutely, um, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no, you're really welcome. appreciate it. Yeah, this has been great. Um, before we go,
1: is there anything we should look forward to in the future of Dropbox? Uh, well I don't know if you've used uh, Dropbox paper. It's one of our newer products. It's actually one of those like more it's not experimental anymore. It was a beta that was launched last year. It's already public. Um, it is a new collaborative uh, editing surface uh, okay. that I think is a really interesting take on uh, not only co-editing but also coordination. Uh, if you haven't checked it out it's bo- uh, paper.dropbox.com. I've now this, this is gonna sound very like the mother talking about the child <laughs> um, but uh, I really have moved most of my flows of like creation and ideation and um, working with other people into paper just because how easy it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a lot of the burden of thinking about how you're gonna format a document or or even like, how are you going to lay out images? I know it sounds kind of silly, but when you're working, for example, in mocks and things like that, yeah. presentation matters so much for getting the good uh, feedback and feedback loops. And paper has really enabled me to do that more effectively. Fantastic! Too. If you haven't that, checked it out, that's right. Go yeah, to yeah. Them. that's right
2: up our alley. And does it integrate with other products as well um, that you know your clients may use, etc.? Yeah, yeah. Great. And that's Wonderful.
1: like that's part of the other like. Thread of things that I was talking about that it may not be an initially like very useful for a consumer, but it's yeah. definitely for a team product, uh, and it's a service that's uh, we we're definitely investing
2: on. Well, will check it out when we get home, definitely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, anay Thank
0: you so much. And where can everyone
1: find you online if they want to know oh, more?
2: Man, I don't really have a lot of online presence.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't have a I have a Twitter account I never use, uh, but I'm on LinkedIn. Online LinkedIn. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Of course. Thank you.
0: Christopher Carmichael is the Chief Technology Officer for the Stennis Space Center, which is NASA's largest rocket testing facility located on the Mississippi-Louisiana border. Christopher and I are joined by Adi Shikara, the client partner for Three Pillar Global. So we're here at Collision with Christopher, who is the Chief Technology Officer for NASA, the yeah. local NASA yeah, at
3: Stennis Space Center.
0: Stennis Space Center. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Stennis Space Center does?
3: Sure. Yeah. Stennis' main mission is testing rocket engines. Okay. So we've uh, test. We were actually in charge of testing all the space shuttle main engines. So if there was a space shuttle that went to space, it came through Hancock County, Mississippi. Wow. And there, there was a um, old physicist, uh, Werner von Braun. You may. May, may know his name. He uh, he actually worked for NASA, and um, he uh, that was his saying: if you, if you're going to go to space, you have to go through Hancock County, Mississippi. So it's <laughs> pretty was, good saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it puts
0: you on the map a bit. Exactly. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah, yeah. We have a, a huge acoustical buffer zone okay. around Stennis for testing all the engines because this goes way back to the Apollo days. Actually, oh. we tested engines for, uh, then as well. So, and we're actually working on um, some of the stages for the SLS, which is the NASA's new heavy uh, lift rocket that'll take humans and all the supplies they need to the Moon, Mars, and beyond one day. So, wow, yeah.
4: that's pretty cool. So, how does NASA use technology to test space engine specifically software?
3: Well, um, it, yeah, we have. You know, they bring an engine in, they mount it on the gimbal on the test stand, and there is an array of sensors, software, analytics, simulations. You know, they have to go along with that. So you can imagine, heavy on the software, heavy on the hardware. Um, we have da- high-speed, low-speed data acquisition systems, cameras. You know, all, all that kind of stuff to get all the feedback. the The an engine test can get several thousand degrees. So you know, there's there's red lines on temperature, pressure, all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, you know, and then there's really technology, you know, is a big word. It's There's IT in it. There's, mm-hmm. you know, space technology. There's f- physics-type stuff. You know, there's a whole gambit there. So, you know, it's it's a huge team works on these engine tests. And when we have a successful test, it's always a good day, you know. Oh, I And, bet. and it's, it's a bad day if we have a launch from Stennis. You definitely don't, <laughs> really don't want it launch because we hold those things down so we can check them out. <laughs> nice. Yeah.
4: So you've been there almost a decade now, coming up on 10 years?
3: Yeah, it's hard to believe it's
4: been that long. <laughs> you know, so- it was... Over the years, what has the like the transformation and changes that you have seen? What are the inflection points that your team went through? What's the story?
3: Oh yeah, I mean, every day, like I said, um, it, every day is an adventure. It, it, it's we're working um, as I, the, in the course that I've been there. I've seen um, the model go from a center focus centric kind of uh, model to a more agency enterprise approach, which is a good thing. You know, we can leverage off of you know, enterprise licenses, um, you know, the cost models go down As and then, then we're not in the business of managing the business so much, that goes up at the enterprise level. Then, uh, you know, we can focus on the actual implementation. I mean, there are some sacrifices then, you know, is as, as, like I said, if it's managed at the uh, agency level, you don't get as much say-so, you know, so you have to kind of follow guidance that's handed down, which, you know, again, it's, it's in the name of like, um, you know, I, earlier in conversation, I was mentioning how my previous uh, position with the development team. Yep. We, you know, had to manage as the system grew, we scaled up and, you know, you have to, you know, it's, the, the complexity grows. So, you know, it, it's, it's something that we have to deal with. Uh, at Stennis, we're in the middle of a big VoIP expansion, um, you know, because, uh, you know, in the, in the government, budget's tight. You know, yep. so we have to manage that carefully. You know, um, what gets repaired this month, what gets expanded, what, you know expansion of Wi-Fi, um, you know, all that. So, you know, we a lot of times projects have to roll out more slowly that way, unfortunately. So, you know, uh, we have roadmaps for the next five, 10, 25 years down the road, wow. um, center and agency level that'll, you know, bring us that much closer to transforming the agency, you know, digitally and, and as well as other things. Heavy into machine learning right now, um, okay. where we're trying to build... Uh, that um, infrastructure within the Computing Services Program Office, which is housed out of Ames Research Center in California, <laughs> pretty cool. And um, yeah, each center has its kind of we think of it as centers of excellence. Yeah, you know, we mm-hmm. have ten field centers. So uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, of course, that's a really famous one up in Huntsville. They're in charge of a lot of the uh, IT infrastructure. Kennedy, Johnson, you know, and Stennis. We, we we each contributed our, our different part. Not just our main public mission of the testing the engines, but, right. you know, we have different features uh, spread across the whole country. Cool. So, so yeah. you
4: mentioned the long roadmaps. Do you see those roadmaps changing, uh, like, all the time, or
3: is it, like, very strict that you guys stick to? Well, I think we'd like it if they didn't change, but, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, adjustments do have to be made, and it's a good, we, we try to manage and, and mitigate things as they come along so they don't impact it heavily. Because, so, you know, if you're changing it every day, you're never going to get anywhere, obviously. But, um, you know, there's an operational plan and then there's kind of a strategic roadmap. And if you don't meet that roadmap of what you want to be in five years because X, Y, or Z happened, then that's just the way that it's got to be, you right. know, and you adjust accordingly. But we try to hit it, you know, as yeah, as best we can. Just to be clear, <laughs> that we are actually talking rocket science here. <laughs> <laughs> You it's so funny. Everybody thinks I work for right NASA. So I'm a rocket scientist. You know, I, I've had friends and family that are in in college or whatever. They, they, right. I get all the space questions. I'm like, <laughs> I'm googling it as they're asking it. You know, I'm like, I'm, I do it. I know a little bit. You know,
4: <laughs> that's that's where Hey Alexa comes in, right? Exactly. Yeah. There you go. So you mentioned your focus on machine learning right now. Can you talk about how are you leveraging it? What are you looking into?
3: Like uh, well, we're we're working a project at Stennis right now uh, with the safety office on predictive analytics for and nice. um, predicting what components, um, whether it's on the test stands, you know, valves, things like that, or it could be, um, you know, a railing, safety railing somewhere else in a building, oh. uh, things that might be failing, you know, so we can predict it and go ahead and you know address that ahead right. of time, which is a really cool, you know, yeah. astounding project. I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to get um, involved with that on the ground up, and you know, we hope to see that through. We have a, um, a service that was actually utilized by, I um, believe, the SLS team, uh, housed again out of Ames, that is uh, responsible for uh, some of the, the deep learning and machine learning um, aspects there and uh, analyzing the big data. So they've, uh, we've been working with them to kind of build the system and then we're gonna eventually, you know, house it at Stennis, um, you know, once we kind of get everything up and going, Um, you know. So we're leveraging off of their licensing right now for that and and learning a lot and being here at Collision, I've learned a lot from the AWS team, which NASA utilizes as well. Um, So yeah, I mean, I'm all about, as CTO, I'm all about sharing information. I I come across uh, a lot of times my role is more or less just a um, customer relationship, if you will. You know, putting the right people in touch with the right people yeah. so that they can share the information, share the resources. Right. Because like I said, you know, budget's being tight and all. You know, if if we have something on-prem on that can help out, yeah. you know, then all it means, you know, let's take advantage of that instead of buying it again, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot of times you don't know, you know. someone else maybe have
4: exactly what you need. Right, and you're building not just low, uh, smaller teams, you're building the entire organization as one single team, but connecting people across the board.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, keeping our eyes on the future in terms of what new technologies may yield um, efficiencies, uh, you know, whether uh, process efficiency or straight-up hardware and software, you know, resource efficiencies as well, so... It's it's a full-time job in itself. And then I also wear other hats too, so, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: (laughs) So where can people keep up with what's going on at Stennis?
3: Uh, Well, the NASA, uh, .nasa www.nasa.gov is our public-facing website for the agency. Then there's slash centers slash Stennis, which um, is public-facing for that. Uh, We also have a Twitter feed and a Facebook page, so it's good social media. You can follow that. And anytime we have engine tests, we usually um, uh, will broadcast it. Through those methods whether it's sometimes for some engine tests we invite the public on site nice. to come on to witness it in person and i try to make it to any of them that i can't i haven't got bored of them yet because it's just an awesome feeling to sit there for some of the longer tests or 500 seconds mm-hmm. and you sit there for that duration of time just rumbling i mean the ground's rumbling everything's rumbling so oh, i bet it's a really cool experience i was fortunate enough to get to go to Kennedy. Uh, for one of the last uh, shuttle launches. When mm-hmm. I first started with the agency, they were, there was the last few missions were flying. So that was an experience there too. So nice. I, I grab it while I can because one day I won't be able to see it anymore. Yeah. You know? So it's, <laughs> it's definitely a cool, cool experience.
0: Very lucky. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> yeah. You. Well, thank you so much for Absolutely. joining us. This has been great. I enjoyed it. Of course. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Mercedes Soria is the VP of Software Engineering for Nightscope which is a Silicon Valley-based startup that utilizes autonomous robots, analytics, and engagement to predict and prevent crime. Mercedes and I are joined by Jesse Vizcano, a client partner for 3Pillar Global. All right, so we're here at Collision with Mercedes Soria of Nightscope. Welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about
5: what you do and who you are? Thank you, yes. Uh, I work at Nightscope. It's a startup in Silicon Valley. We build what we call the ultimate security guard. Okay. Which means it's an autonomous self-driving robot that is, uh, rolls around on its own and collects data from the environment that it has been sent to patrol. And what we do with that information is we determine if something is out of the ordinary, and if it's something out of the ordinary, only then human security guards get involved. Mm. Wow, okay. So what kind of data does it collect? So it collects things like noise levels. It collects video 360 degrees. It collects Mm -hmm. night vision. It collects thermal temperatures in the environment. Mm -hmm. We can read license plates. We can collect the signature of all of your devices Mm -hmm. up to 450 feet. Oh, wow. So any cell phone, any rogue router, anything that emits a signal, we can collect. Wow. And the the whole goal for this is to provide information to our customers in case there's something that happens, uh, an accident or incident that needs to be managed. They can have enough information to be able to do the research and find out what was the cost.
6: Wow. Very nice. that's very cool. Tell us a little bit about how, how the company um, you know, came to be. Where, where did the idea for this uh, solution come from?
5: So the co-founders are William Santana Lee, who's our CEO, mm-hmm. and Stacey Dean Stevens, which is our VP of sales. So they've been working in the security space for, since the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they were working on before was a security automobile. But it was too early at that time. Nobody was thinking self-driving cars or self-driving robots, but they wanted to stay in the technology space. Mm -hmm. So that's when I got involved Mm -hmm. and the idea of a security robot came about. And that's when all the software engineering experience that I have helped us become a reality with security robots.
6: Very cool.
0: Very nice. So it's a physical robot that you send into different spaces, and it takes the place of, say, a 24-hour security guard?
5: Yes. It is a five-foot-tall, 400-pound robot. Five-foot-tall? <laughs> when, <people, laughs> when, when people hear about it, they think it's like a tiny, maybe a foot-tall thing. Right. I was thinking like R2-D2, yeah. maybe. No, it's a big thing. And the and reason— 400- 400 pounds. Wow. Yeah, they asked us to bring it here to the conference, and we're like, well, you don't really want to do that.
6: <laughs> <laughs> because
5: shipping 400 pounds is not cheap. That's yeah. a lot, yeah. So customers determine that there's an area, sometimes there's crime, always crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some of our hospitals, when people leave the hospital at 2 a.m., mm-hmm. they get robbed, they get mugged, yeah. their cars get open. There's a lot of crime around that people just don't know about. So just by putting a security guard there, what our experience is that our clients experience a hundred percent reduction on crime, wherever their robot is located. 100%. 100%. And if you think about it is, if you live in a bad neighborhood and you put a unmarked law enforcement car in front of your house, Criminals are not going there. Yeah. They're going to go to wherever there's no video and That's wherever right. there's no one looking. That's right. So as soon as you put it over there, there's a presence, there's a physical presence and yeah. the crime on top of doing all the other collection of data that it does.
6: Yeah. So, what I guess... What are the types of companies you guys are working with right now? Where have you deployed so far?
5: So we work with uh, Fortune 500 companies. Okay. Uh, we work with hospitals like yeah. Dignity Health is a large hospital chain in uh-huh. California, Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, we work with Starbucks. We deployed at the LaGuardia Airport. So yeah. um, airports, uh, corporate campuses, malls, shopping centers, yeah. uh, wow. seaports, anywhere that you can put a security guard, you mm-hmm. can pretty much put one of our robots there. And what makes them more effective than a human guard? So if you think about a a crime that you see that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. That security guard can see it, but that security guard cannot replay that because there's no video, right? right. So they're gonna recall just what they remember, which is is maybe 30 or 40% of what they saw. Mm -hmm. If you have a robot that is looking at it, 24/7, and it has 360-degree video of what happened. It's a lot easier to apprehend somebody because you got the evidence right there. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Wow.
6: I'm that's that's really cool. Yeah. 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 So
5: there's so, so we started in 2013. Yeah. Uh, and then by 2015, it took us two years. Because people were not ready for robot security guards yet. Sure. Mm-hmm. So by 2015 is when we started to get our first paying customers. Okay. And from then it just snowballed into all the customers that we have now. We are in 15 states in the wow. United States. Yeah. Uh, and we are in four time zones. Wow. Uh, and we monitor all of our customers as security operations centers. Yeah. Very nice. Wow. Yeah.
6: So, how do people interact with the robot right now? Is it voice? Is it like, like what is the, yeah, what does that interaction look like?
5: So, there's voice, yes. Yeah. So, if I give you an example in our shopping centers. So, what security guards do on top of just security is they serve as concierges. Sure. So, people can ask them questions how do I get to the mall? Mo- how, do, how do I get to the bathroom? How right. do I go to the store? The machine can do the same. Right. We have buttons in it that you can push if there's an emergency, and then you can can talk one-on-one with someone at the security operations center. Oh. So they can see what's happening via the machine's cameras and they can hear you talk via the machine and they can respond to you and they can give you help that way. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that we have found is that people get very attached to a robot. So they give huh. them names like Rosie, the robot. Okay. There's a C. 3PO, there's a chat robot. I mean, they give them names everywhere. And some of them even change the wrap of the robot itself to match their logos or the neighborhood where it's deployed. So people get super attached to it. And one of the things that we never planned for was finding lipstick on the robot. People love to kiss (laughs) it. especially they <gasps> no. going selfie with the robot at the mall kissing the robot at the mall all kinds of things that yeah. we never planned for well our. that wow. makes
6: sense it's novel right it's yeah. a new technology
5: yeah yeah and, and the key part for us was to make something that was uh, scary enough mm-hmm. to prevent crime but also friendly enough so your kid doesn't run away from it so right. that's the that was the challenge in designing for us mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. so you don't think you'd ever make it any smaller or lighter? We have four different types of robots. Okay. And depending on how big the area that you want to patrol is, then we give you the machine that meets those requirements. Okay. So we have a smaller one. It's a 300 pound, uh, four four feet tall robot. And Mm -hmm. that one's the one that goes inside. For example, Uh, here at the convention center, we've patrolled conferences before with the indoor unit. And then if you have problems in your parking lot, we give you the bigger unit, the K5. Interesting. Very nice. Very
6: interesting. What are you excited about? So you've got a 400-pound bundle of sensors, a bunch of data scientists that are just so hungry for all the data it's collecting, and now years' worth of stuff that you've seen. What are you really excited about coming next for your product?
5: So for my product, what's coming next is something that was very critical to our company when we started. We didn't want to just prevent crime. We wanted to predict crime. Mm. So now that we have all the data, we can do things like, oh, somebody screamed. Because I'm able to train an algorithm in what a screaming person sounds like. Right. So if somebody is screaming, is, there's either a crime that's about to happen or a crime that already happened. So we want to get to the point in which we have all of the information and we can say, in this area, at this time, there's a possibility that crime will happen that is 80%. Wow. That's, the prediction, that's the prediction step that we're hoping to take. And that's what's next in our, in our future.
6: That's Pretty cool.
5: That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the goal is to keep America—I mean, people don't know this, but it costs $1 trillion to keep America safe from crime every year.
6: Yeah. Wow. Our goal
5: is to cut that in half. Wow. That is a good goal. Yeah, with our security <sighs> roads. Wow. Yeah. Very nice.
6: That's very cool.
0: So uh, where can people find more information online?
5: They can go to nightscope.com. Okay. Uh, and that's spelled night as a knight in shiny armor. And then the word scope, S-C-O-P, nightscope.com. And you can find everything about the machine, how to buy it, how to lease it, contact information, videos, all the information is out there. Very nice. Well, thank you yeah. so yeah. much cool. for joining us. Yeah, for all joining us. All right, you. guys, thank you. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Andrew
0: McCarg is the head of technology for Haymarket Media. Haymarket Network is one of the largest content marketing networks in the UK, providing engaging content across print and online. Andrew and I are joined by Adi Shikara, a client partner for 3Pillar Global. All right, so we're here at Collision with Andrew with Haymarket Media. Welcome. Thank you for joining us.
7: Uh Pleasure. Pleasure.
4: Andrew, you have been doing some quite interesting stuff for the past year or so at Haymarket. Would you want to tell us a story
7: about it? Yeah, so I started a new role within uh, Haymarket Consumer Media, which is six brands that Haymarket have owned. Um, Haymarket are the largest privately owned publishing house in Europe, um, owned by Michael Heseltine, the, the politician. And so for the last year, I've, I've been working with the managing director of that division and how we change that business and how we, how we move it forward. So, We've been, he had uh, this, a vision of 50 30 20 and, right. and how we change the business from where we are at the minute to, to this 50 30 20. And the 50 30 20 is around advertising and other revenues, so moving it away from where we are at the minute, which is very heavily reliant on, on adverts right. and to other, other revenues. So, can we get affiliate revenues up? Uh, can we change the models that we, we have so that we can have less reliance on, on pure? either programmatic ads or just or house ads right. and uh, get the revenue from from other places. So I started the job with them uh, a year ago just in this part of, of working at Haymarket. And the first task week that I sort of changed the team, the changed the point on it was to target revenue. How can we get that revenue up quickly? Right. So it's important. So, so the first one we did was uh, MSN. So everyone thinks MSN's this sort of archaic website that nobody yeah. goes to. Mm-hmm. Wrong. It makes a lot of money. Yep. Uh, really? So yeah, just, just just crazy amount of money. And it's a straight revenue share between Microsoft and then the, and the publishers. So they don't write any content. They don't sell the ads. They just sit in the middle and and, and make money. Wow. So, first thing we did was build the feed so we could get our content into their site and building new different types of content to to, to feed that. So, they have um, a very good track record on getting completion rates and people looking at 50 slide deck sort of uh, content items and it's like a completion rate of 85% to go through (laughs) 50 lines of sort of, this is a car, this is another car, this is another car and obviously each click is, a, is another ad and right. the, re, the revenues are nuts. So uh, the product team who were working before I got there had sort of pushed it back and said, this isn't, this isn't a goer. So I was like, right, stop. Team, we're going to get that done. The first two weeks I'm, I'm working in this job, we will get this completed. So we got that completed out the door, and, and that created this new revenue stream that we hadn't had before. Great
4: example of lead
7: by example there. Yeah, So then, so then sort of the... The next sort of point one was was the affiliate revenue, so we built our own retail solution wow. based around Node and it was it started out as just as a, as a working project right. uh, and then went into production just without having all the production ready stuff, uh, production ready. As we do. As you, as you <laughs> do. I got sort of another bit of the team concentrating on that, how can we make that a bit more efficient, make that a bit more working, so that got the affiliate, affiliate revenue. So. If you go onto what hi-fi.com, yep. you go and look at a set of speakers, where can you go and buy that speaker? Can you buy it on Amazon? Can you buy it on eBay? Can you go to John Lewis, anywhere else that, that's selling it? So we, we concentrated some team around that and the UX team came up with some new UI for that and how customers can integrate with that, so we've got the, the revenue there up. And then the third one we sort of done in the last and the last year, which is is Improve the things is is viewability in ads. So ad ad revenue is still important to us. So again, I sort of once we'd done those two projects, it was like, what's the next project we're going to work on? Yep. And that was getting our viewability, which was down at sort of twenty five percent, up to the eighty five ninety percent mark, is where we're trying to get to. Right. And just before we sold them, we were up at the sort of seventy percent mark. So, so really in the space great. of in the space of sort of six months of working this on this, these brands, we managed to change quite a number of dials quite quickly.
4: So how did you make that last jump between 25
7: to 70? What oh, happened? just that that's over a period of, of six months. That's not, it wasn't like today is here, tomorrow is there. But what
4: happened in the, on those six months? Like, what were the key things that you did that turned that?
7: So that was just getting uh, lots of dead code stripped out of the site. So lots All of right. JavaScript calls, extra JavaScript calls that were being made, left, right, and center, get that stripped out, changing the UX and how the, the positioning of the ads and where they were, and sticky ads and other bits and pieces. Right. Each dial we did, we did some testing and got it up, some bits brought it down, so we put those back in. And over the period of a couple of months, we moved the dial significantly. So
4: Interesting. It's almost uh, those basic things that you, you know, think that you should probably do from day one, but and you have to always keep going back to those basics. And it always works once you do. Like, make the side better. Like, remove all your dead code, make it Faster, like these are simple things that probably you should focus on, on day one.
7: And, and people, you, you don't you, because you get into a product manager will come right. to you and say this is more important, so yeah. you, you never get the chance to do that tidy up process. So by doing all these little projects over the sp- pace of uh, six to nine months, we've made significant change in revenues for the businesses and right. and uh, starting to see the profits from. it. Yeah,
4: so really hitting the bottom line there. Yeah,
7: yeah. and that's and that, a lot of that comes though from the vision of the top. Right. And, and you'll hear it at this conference the whole time is, if the vision at the top is right, yep. the rest of it flows down. Yep. That was having a, a director and working for a director who had this very clear vision of where he wanted to get to. Nice. And from that, we managed to get a number of things that we could do to change that, and uh, start to get him towards his revenue targets of 50, 30, 20.
4: Well, on that note, Andrew, thank you for being on the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, before we go, where can people find you online?
7: Uh, I'm on Twitter, doing lots of random stuff, but not on and LinkedIn.
0: Awesome, perfect. Would you want to
7: say your handle? I think it's just my first name, not surname, or right. something like that. Cool.
0: That's fair. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Yoshi Tazuji and Tom Cruise, not that one, join us from WingKel, a storage startup that offers flexible space sizing and rent periods for users. Yoshi and Tom participated in the startup competition hosted by Collision. All right, so we're here at Collision with Yoshi and Tom. Welcome, you're both from WinCal. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about your company?
8: Yes, absolutely. So WinCal, in a simpler words, it's the Airbnb for storage.
0: All right, that's catchy. Tell us more.
8: Yes, so do, do you want to go for more in yeah, details? Yes, certainly.
9: So essentially what we do is we help people with extra space in their homes find others who are looking for a place to store their belongings. Okay. So those people with the extra space, they're able to make money off of that unused and idle space that would otherwise be doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the renters who need to store their belongings, they're able to get a, a more affordable price than typical self-storage companies.
0: That makes sense. And you're not locked into any monthly contracts?
9: Exactly. And so that's, that's one of our differentiators from those self-storage companies is mm-hmm. that the flexibility of time. For example... Uh, our main target market is students. Okay. And over summer, summer break is typically about three and a half months, and so you don't want to be storing for those extra twenty or thirty, twenty or fifteen days, but you have to pay that extra for an entire extra month mm-hmm. with those self-storage companies. With us, you just pay for a, the exact time you want to store and the exact amount of space that you need
8: to store as well. Right. Makes
0: sense. So how did this come about? How did you come up with this idea?
8: So, I'm from Japan. Okay. I got a scholarship to study in the US. Uh, came to Indiana University and I'm standing nice. there. But the thing is, the university kicks students out over the summer, which is quite messed up, right? Mm -hmm. So all the students have to look for storage units, and it's really expensive. It's like $90 a month for five by five. Oh my gosh. But all you want to store is your clothes, textbooks, your bike, right? Nothing to be scared of, you know, of getting stolen. So what I did was I basically stored in my friend's garage, and then I thought, why isn't there a platform like Airbnb where we can find the people in town within an idling space? Yeah. That's why I started, I created a simple website on wix.com and tested it out. I put a bunch of my friend's garage or the basement as a listing and then tested it out. You know, spread the, the website among international students and all the listings were gone in, in one week. Wow. Yeah, then that's when I knew that the, this idea is going to fly. Yeah. 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 Got together with Tom and three other Indian guys uh, mm-hmm. for the tech team and explained the concept. They absolutely loved it, so we decided to start a company.
0: Very nice, and so anybody can use the platform?
8: Yes, anybody yes. can.
0: And do you charge by the square foot? How do you kind of create the listings and let people rent?
8: Mm-hmm. So we created our own algorithm to okay. uh, calculate the price, but it's, it's, it's not per se the per square foot pricing. Mm-hmm. Let's say 25 square foot is not equal to the price of one square foot times 25. Mm-hmm. So we have their own algorithm to figure that out. But the thing is, let's say you want to store this table. It's about, let's say, three by three. You go to storage companies, you have to pay five by five. But with us, you pay for three by three. Ah.
0: Well,
8: yeah.
9: And the way the pricing works as well is we so we, we use that algorithm to give our hosts a recommended price. OK. Then the hosts can choose a price that they that they oh decide is is necessary and and sufficient. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it essentially creates a market for people to say, hey, I have kind of more of a premium, more secure, potentially temperature-controlled space, so I'm going to charge a little bit more money uh, whereas somebody who might just have a storage shed out back.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's what I was going to follow up with. You mentioned security. How do you take the safety aspect into consideration.
8: Right. Interesting thing about the insurance in America is that if you have renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance that covers this, the stuff that's away from your home, mm-hmm. that's usually around $2,000. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have too much stuff in your house, you want to store it in your friend's, neighbor, friend's garage, then that stuff is covered under your homeowner's insurance. So your stuff is technically protected.
0: Oh, that is good to know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also ran into an issue once where I needed to rent a storage space for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was a whole hassle. I was in London, actually. It was a whole hassle. It ended up being this whole story couldn't get the storage space unlocked. We paid a a whole monthly price. It was this whole thing. My friends are still mad at me. This was five years ago. My friends are still mad at me because we couldn't get our stuff out when we needed to. So your product is making me very happy, but I wish you had invented it five years ago so (laughs) that I could have avoided that and would still have three friends that I don't have anymore. I'm (laughs) sorry
9: we cost you those friends, Julia. It's all
0: right. So is it app-based or is it web-based?
9: It's currently app-based. Okay. We have it for both Android and iOS. Oh, very nice. Uh, we do have a website as well, but it's more informational at this point. Okay. Uh, we hope to have it functioning by the end of the year, um, where you're able to create a profile, list your space, find a space, and do the
8: entire interaction and transaction uh, on the website.
0: Very nice. And what's the geographical spread of it so far?
8: It's across different states. Um, we're built in twelve different universities. Okay. And we are also testing to see which market is the best for us. Like which state, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of city or suburb, right? Or big public school or smaller private school. And we are testing out with the different universities. And we have the brand ambassadors in each school who are advertising our mar- you know services to different markets. And yeah, we have the partnership with Google mm-hmm. at the end of uh, 2018. So that's going to spread us to um, you know all of the US as well.
0: Very nice. Awesome. Well, before we go, where can we find you all online and find more information?
8: More information on www.winkel.com. Make sure to put dash between win and kale.
0: So it's win dash ke Yes, Awesome. And both of you, are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? Can people find more information about you all? Mm-hmm.
8: Yes. Uh, yes. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all that. So you can just uh, type in Winkel, Winkel Storage, and you will be able to find it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Absolutely. looking forward to using this
8: platform. <laughs> yes, thank you for having us, Julia. Of course. Right, thank you so much. <laughs>
0: Jonathan Verk is the co-founder of Co-Parenter. co is an online dispute resolution platform using AI and machine learning and live on-demand mediators to help separating, divorced and never married parents save money and time and stay out of family court. Jonathan and I are also joined by Tom Scott, a senior client partner at 3Pillar Global. All right. So we're here at Collision with Jonathan Virk of Co-Parenter. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Can you give us a little background on who you are and what you do? Sure. Sure.
10: Uh, my name is Jonathan Virk. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Co-Parenter. Uh, Co-Parenter is a, uh, a management and mediation platform for separating divorced and never married parents. Helps them manage and organize their co-parenting responsibilities, communicate better, document their agreements. But the real... Uh, innovation that we offer is the ability to connect with an on-demand mediator who can help parents resolve disputes, triage their tri- triage their crisis, document the agreements, synchronize those agreements with your phone, and actually make it really easy for you to file it with the court or e-file it if that's what you want to do.
0: Wow, that's pretty great. So you gave a pitch earlier in the startup center.
10: I, I pitch all the time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How did that go? Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was great. It was
10: great, yeah. I mean, they do a really good job here at Collision. Very organized and uh, a great caliber of of judges.
0: Yeah, it was good. Very nice. So all of your services are app-based. How does that work?
10: So parents can get onto the app in uh, a number of different ways. Number one, they can uh, access it through the courts. Uh, There are judges across uh, Canada and the U.S. that are um, ordering people to use the platform. Uh, the reason for that is that the the the, the platform, Co-Parenter, uh, really does help reduce caseload in the court system. Okay. Most of what people argue about in court and outside of court are everyday co-parenting issues, not legal issues uh, that really require the, the courts. Um, 80% of what they are arguing about is co-parenting issues, swapping weekends, getting holidays, sending the, you know, the pants back and forth, the shoes, et cetera, Mm -hmm. signing the kids up for school or dance lessons or piano. And then they end up fighting about it. One of the most common things that people argue about is one parent being perpetually late for pickup and drop off. It's crazy, but that's what ends up in court. And so we built this tool and uh, judges are ordering it because we have uh, uh, 85% of our users self-report that they no longer use courts to resolve their issues, they're able to do it over Co-Parenter. So the judges love it. Another way that people access the app is uh, through a private practitioner. That's a lawyer, a mediator, or a mental health professional, a a therapist, a a social worker. And they use the platform, uh, uh, we have an enterprise version of the platform, an enterprise uh, 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 version of Co-Parenter that private practitioners use to really augment their their practice and offer services that they just could never offer before. Things like being able to help uh, uh, parents create a parenting plan. Right? Uh, where that would take nine, 12 hours, three sessions, four sessions, multiple weeks. Nobody has the money to do that. But to be able to create a parenting plan instead of waiting 36 weeks for the court to be able to see you is very, very appealing for 10 bucks a month. And then the third way that people access the app is downloading it from the, from the App Store. It's, uh, you know, available in the App Store. They hear about it word of mouth, or we've got a bunch of content that we have out there from blogs to video. And uh, we actually have a show uh, in development now with a major network.
0: Very nice.
10: Yeah.
11: And Jonathan, you would mentioned that there were some machine learning Machine learning, data science, what yeah. aspects of the platform can you tell us something
10: more about that? Sure. So we're using machine learning with uh, an integrated uh, human intervention approach. So we're using the the machine learning to recognize where and when conflict is starting to arise, and surface options, surface alternatives, and basically nudge parents to take a more child-centric approach to resolving their dispute. As soon as the system recognizes that, okay, we're time for we have you know now it's time to bring in a live. Mediator, they're presented with that option, and they can connect with a um, on-demand mediator for that.
11: I see. So the parents are collaborating through the platform. Maybe they're getting along, but sort of the tier one
10: exactly um, yeah. AI
11: is monitoring to suggest when it's time to get a mediator
10: involved. We, we've we've resolved thousands of disputes, and you know a lot of them are pretty similar. And so training a machine to recognize common pain points and common solutions. Look, everybody fights about Christmas. It's crazy. Everybody fights about Christmas. Jews fight about Christmas. Uh, and who's going to get it? 99 times out of 100, if you really want to take that to court, and believe me, people do all the time. Wow. Uh, the judge is very likely going to say, really, 99 times out of 100, that you can both have Christmas, but you'll alternate years. That's, that's the solution. That's not hard to, to surface when you recognize if it's Memorial Day or if it's you know, Martin Luther King Day or whatever it is, we're able to um, you know, recognize when those kinds of issues pop up.
0: So where can everyone find you online?
10: Coparenter.com. Very nice. Yeah, we're at Coparenter.com. We've got a really active uh, community in the in, in the Facebook machine. Okay. Um, you know, we're kind of you know we're, we're we're definitely playing with Instagram and you know the other channels. Facebook is a very very active community. We've got over fifty thousand fans, um, and they're you know they're more than just fans. They're parents, and they're coming and looking for information. We've got a very uh, robust blog and, like I said, content strategy uh, for uh, for getting this information out there. You know, with one of two people, one of two marriages ending in divorce, Mm -hmm. it's a remarkably hungry community. There's not a lot of information out there, real information. I bet. A lot of, you know, angry dad groups, angry mom groups, lawyers marketing their services. But there's not a lot of really good information that helps parents take a more child-centric approach to resolving their disputes. So we created one.
0: Very nice. Thank you so much for offering your services and for talking to us today.
10: Thank you. Appreciate it. Great story.
0: If you've made it this far, you've reached the end of the line for the Innovation Engine Spring 2018 North America Tour. We do these types of events occasionally because we find that there's no better way to get up close and personal with the concept of innovation than to get out there in the world and to talk with some of the people who are on the front lines of it each and every day. Thanks very much for listening. As we brought you a double feature from Didge South in Charleston, South Carolina, the last time around, and now this episode from Collision in New Orleans, Louisiana. Many thanks to all of the guests who took time out of their schedules to talk with us, and thank you for listening.
11: The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www dot threepillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the three pillar website at threepillarglobal.com/slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Don't forget we also have an iOS app for the innovation engine. Search for the innovation engine on the App Store from your iOS devices. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often who listens to it. We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.sherlin at ThreePillarGlobal.com pillarglobalcom is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.